Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hat. This is really good today because we have a returnee and one that was amazingly popular last time he was on. We have with us Jonathan Clements uh, and he's here today as the author of Confucius, a biography, a fantastic introduction not only to Confucius but also Confucianism which, depending on how you want to count it, is either a wacky cult with six million devotees or a belief system that claims 350 million followers in 91 countries. That's a bigger, larger percentage of the global population than Buddhism. In your face, Buddhism. So, Jonathan, hi, how's it going? Hello, I'm very pleased to hear that I was popular. I've never been popular before. So Yeah, you, everyone loved that Chinese food one. They absolutely loved it. Excellent. Well, we, we like to hear this. Uh, hopefully we haven't put off the world's Buddhist population at this point, no. No, we love Buddhism. I we love Buddhist. Buddhism stuff. Yeah, and also going around Thailand, what a wonderful religion. I went around uh, adopting Buddhism uh, traits and leaving paracetamol in temples for everybody because I thought that was a lovely idea that you leave <laughs> like that in temples so that people who need them can go and get them. Oh, how sweet. Because I just thought, like, what's the worst thing in the world is, like, a toothache, right? Mm. And my little travel bag was overstuffed with paracetamol, so I was leaving sachets all over Thailand, basically. Uh, we love Buddhism, but we're not here to talk about Buddhism. Are we, we are not, no. Right, okay. I am a total idiot when it comes to this subject, so I'm really excited to learn more. Um, so, But uh, if, as said total idiot, I was to say to you, so if I read Confucius says on the internet, that's totally legit, right? Would you get angry? Yes, I would. I am that guy on Facebook who, whenever someone quotes Confucius, turns up in the comments saying, and where exactly did you see that? Um, because... <laughs> in a meme, in a meme. Yeah, because there's so much nonsense written about Confucius, and people think if you put on a Bert Cook voice and say anything, uh, it, it's probably a Confucius saying, and, and it, it really isn't. And, and part of the problem is, is that um, the works of Confucius themselves are actually very, very compact. It's, it's, you can pretty much more or less memorize them. Um, but there is a huge volume of work that is attributed to him as well. Mm. Um, so it's not just the sayings of Confucius, uh, the, uh, the Analects as they're known. Um, there is an entire history of ancient China that's attributed to Confucius. There is a, uh, a book of songs that he supposedly edited. Um, there is, um, um, all kinds of material. I mean, there's a commentary on the I Ching, even that supposedly Confucius edited. And I'll, I'll be, don't get me started on that. But so as a result, <laughs> There is a body of work that you could in some way attribute to Confucius that is twice the size of the New Testament. 
Um, and so these are <laughs> books, yeah, books that he's been near at some point, books that he may well have used as teaching aids are then attributed to him as, as sayings that he might have said. And so you don't just have to think, did Confucius say that? You have to think, is there an old Chinese book that someone might think Confucius had edited, which he, which this might be a quote from? Um, and there are all kinds of things like, you know, may you live in interesting times, which are not even Chinese at all. And people just stick, say, well, Confucius probably said that. Confucius and Sun Tzu, the author of The Art of War, yeah. um, are, are the two people who get most misquoted. And so, you know, pretty much once a week, I'm, I'm being an annoying pedant and annoying and ruining someone's day by saying Confucius didn't say that, for God's sake. But then that, to, to be fair, um, I do that every time someone from, I don't know, some national front style political thing posts a picture of war graves and says they died so that we could be overrun with foreigners. And it's like, well, those are French war graves for a start. But <laughs> yeah, we don't do crosses. So uh, sucks yeah. to be you. But yeah, sometimes pedants need taking down. So who is Confucius and when does he live? Because I don't even know that. He's about 500 BC, isn't he? That's right. Yes. Um, he was uh, flourishing around the, uh, the, the 5th, 6th century BC. Um, I should probably actually know uh, when he um, died, which was about 481 BC. Be fair, you're so busy getting rid of the misquoting idiots online that you can be forgiven. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that the, the, the most famous of, of the books that he supposedly edited or oversaw in some way is a book called The Spring and Autumn Annals. And that suddenly stops in the year 481 BC, um, when he would have been about 70 years old. OK, um, so that's so, a assumption. Yeah. So so we're, we're looking at you know a, a Bronze Age figure who lived in China before China existed. Hmm. Uh, I mean, basically, you have this um, you have this idea of the son of heaven. You have this central sovereign. But he rules a very, very small area of territory on the Yellow River. Um, and over the years, he's kind, uh, his ancestors have sort of, um, this is the son of heaven, not Confucius, his ancestors have parceled out land to their descendants. And because the Bronze Age is slowly turning into the Iron Age, you've got um, these people are suddenly able to have areas of land that are actually much larger than the central country that they are supposedly loyal to. So you have a king, you have a ruler in the middle, and then you have these dukes scattered around what would become China. And their land area is much bigger than the king's area itself. So, so the ruler of the world, supposedly the ruler of all under heaven at this time, is yeah. a figure more like the Pope. He has a sort of spiritual power, but he doesn't really have, uh, he's got a kind of diminishing uh, secular power. And the dukes are really coming up. And, and, you know, after Confucius died, in fact, China descended into the state of civil war where the dukes pro proclaimed themselves kings. And ultimately, uh, in, in the third century BC, uh, one of those kings proclaimed himself to be the first emperor. And that's when you get the first emperor of China and the first concept that China is one big country, not um, a bunch of little ones. So that's that's the time that Confucius lived in. Uh -huh. And uh, he did not see himself as some kind of religious figure. He uh, he didn't see himself as uh, an innovator in any way. He saw himself as a preserver of ancient traditions. And so uh, the question that he would ask is, um, you know, you, you look at the world, you look at the ancient legends when everyone's immortal and they're, all, you know, throwing thunderbolts and stuff and mm. living for 300 years. And, and um, the Chinese uh, tradition has this idea that things were always better in the past and today is somehow some kind of shitty version of, yeah. of the way things were. And Confucius said, OK, well, if that's the case, 
what went wrong? What did humanity do wrong to leave us in the shitty situation that we are now? And what can we do to reclaim that? How can we return humanity to this kind of golden age that the legends talk about? And he had this idea in his head that it was all about ritual, that as long as you went through the motions correctly, you would have correct posture, you would know the right songs, and that would mean you knew the right knowledge. Um, everyone would know their place in society, and um, harmony would kind of creep out like a virus until it took over the whole world, and you'd have a truly harmonious society, at which point you know, people would live longer, people would be happier, there'd be no need for wars and stuff like that. So everything about Confucius's philosophy was based on this idea that we could create a perfect world if we just behaved in the correct manner. And so the regulation of behavior is really what distinguishes um, Confucianism, uh, if that makes sense. It does. And it's already starting to like take shape for me, which is brilliant. So this is Confucianism. Is yeah. it a religion? And is he like the equivalent of Jesus in China? If you, well, I mean, the, the, the Jesus comparison is, is very apt because um, uh, at the at the Paris Peace Conference in 1918, uh, the Chinese were desperately trying to get Shandong back from the Germans because uh, you know the Japanese had taken uh, Shandong from the Germans, and the China and uh, Wellington Koo, who was the uh, the delegate at the Paris Peace Conference, said, "Well, Shandong is the holy land of China because it's where Confucius was born." And so uh, he deliberately tried to kind of play this Israel card um, with uh, with the uh, the other great powers to suggest that Confucius was some kind of religious figure in China. And uh, strictly speaking, Confucianism is not a religion. Uh, Confucius did not see himself uh, as a religious figure. He did not see himself uh, as someone that needed to be worshipped. Uh, of course, over the centuries, he has become worshipped and Confucianism has in a sense been adopted or was adopted as the Chinese imperial state religion. Uh-huh. Um, but Confucius, very famously, did not speak of supernatural things. He refused to talk about the afterlife. He said, I, I don't know. You know I, I'm not, not going to know till I'm dead. So let's not talk about it. Let's deal with the here and now. So it's an incredibly secular set of beliefs. And there's really no place in it for numinous notions or thoughts of gods or thoughts of the afterlife. So Confucius talks about showing respect for the ancestors. And uh, and this was misinterpreted by the Catholic Church as, as worshipping ancestors. Yeah. Um, but actually, Catholic Church getting it yeah, wrong. Never. Getting it wrong. Imagine. Um, so uh, so there's this. Um, but but when he talks about worshipping your ancestors, what he means is venerating them, is showing a respect for your elders because you must always defer to your elders. Um, and so the, the, the religious angle is, is much more difficult to kind of stick together. I mean, I, I went to a, um, a Confucian school. Uh, I didn't go to a Confucian school, but I, I visited a Confucian school. That would school. be so cool. Yeah, that would be weird, wouldn't it? Um, uh, there's a school in Shandong where they actually teach uh, uh, like posh Chinese children. They give them what they call a Confucian education. Um, and, and someone said to me, so, you know, would Confucius approve of this? And I said, no, he wouldn't approve of it for a moment because, you know, they're worshipping him like a god. There's a little shrine to him. And he, he you know, he wasn't up for that at all. Um, so um, although so, so, you know, the, the figures that you quoted for Confucianism. Yeah, there are 350 million people who describe themselves as adherents to the Confucian value system, but they are not 
religious. There's only six million people who actually worship him uh, like he's some kind of deity, which is why there are kind of two sets of numbers for how big Confucianism actually is. This is, I like this guy. This he's talking sense. If what you're saying, then um, let's talk about the principles of Confucianism. The overriding principle is don't be a dick, and there's a lot of people that could learn from this right now. Absolutely. In fact, uh, when you say don't be a dick, um, that is uh, the the actual quote in Confucius is uh, do not treat others as you would not want to be treated. There's like a negative in it. So he's not. So he's he's saying kind of treat others as you would like to be treated. But it's actually a a, a negative Confucianism. It's like don't be a dick is is a very good translation of it. Um, Other principles of Confucianism um, include knowing your place in society, understanding that uh, parents uh, must be respected by their children, um, that elders must be respected by the younger. um, But that brings with it an obligation as well. So, you know, your your king, um, because we are talking about a feudal society, you know, you're you're obliged to obey your king, but your king is also obliged to provide for you, to look after you. And the same goes with husbands and wives. A a, a wife is supposedly um, supposed to defer to her husband, but her husband is supposed to cherish her and care for her. So everybody's got this place in society, and uh, and and what and and remember that Confucian uh, Confucius didn't say. This is Confucianism because he didn't regard himself as an innovator in any way. He regarded himself as an interpreter of these traditions. So he just said, this is the way that people are supposed to behave. This is um, this is how we achieve harmony. So he didn't think of this as some kind of radical, you know, new development. He was just trying to get people to behave in the way that supposedly everybody's ancestors had behaved before the world turned to shit. I really so, like this guy. Good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm selling him to you. It's, like, it's true, though, isn't it? It's like, I'm no big deal. I'm just telling you, don't be a dick. Yeah. I try this on Twitter and end up with all kind of crazies in my face. Um, well, uh, go on. Well, um, Confucius himself, in the Bronze Age equivalent of Twitter, he ended up with all sorts of crazies in his face as well. Um, he was not particularly well liked um, in his time. Um, so you have this kind of odd situation where uh, if you read about Confucius uh, and the way he was received uh, in, in his in his lifetime, um, he was generally ignored. Um, he was an expert in ritual. He was an expert in ceremony. Um, he was a great you know, uh, political mind. Um, but uh, that kind of backfired. Because a lot of rulers of these various kingdoms that made up China at the time were absolutely terrified if they hired him as a consultant and disobeyed his suggestions that they would look like dicks. Um, So he couldn't get arrested uh, in China. Um, There is supposedly uh, one of the dukes uh, did put him in charge of uh of a town for three years and supposedly everything went really well in that town when he was in charge and supposedly he was a quite a high-ranking minister in the state of lu which is which is shandong where he came from um but uh, the state of lu was quite corrupt it suffered this brexit level catastrophe when a, a bunch of um basically you know corporate robbers took over and and you know uh, brought the state down uh in, in uh, for their own ends 
and and so he actually went into exile and he spent much of his later years in fact most of the analects which is the, the sayings of confucius come from his later years when he's basically wandering around china trying to get hired as a political consultant and being told to piss off by people all over china so he, he went through this terrible period of kind of in the wilderness i mean literally in the wilderness um, uh, before things started to improve later in life and things started to improve later in life because some of his students got hired as political consultants so people started to say okay well you know this this guy confucius he really knows his stuff he's got a fantastic grasp of of how to run a state properly but we don't want to hire him he's kind of too high level um, but his student, Zalu, he's really cool. We'll hire him instead. So some of Confucius' students started to get picked up as, as uh, political consultants in these various um, states. And so he was kind of rehabilitated um, in old age. Um, and, you know, by the end of his life, uh, he was uh, in a position of some respect. Um, but uh, he basically had very little opportunity to put his philosophies into direct use during his own lifetime. So you've mentioned you you mentioned women in terms of um, you're supposed to be nice to your husband, but that your husband is supposed to be nice back. Is he quite good on gender from our perspective thousands of years later or is it again a reflection of a feudal society? I well, that's a difficult question to answer, because as, as you as you so eloquently put it, we're dealing with. 2500 years ago. So attitudes yeah. are very different. And, it, and, it, and it's uh, it's a. Uh, 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 a silly and unreasonable thing to do to try and impose our values mm. um, on a society two and a half thousand years ago. Um, however, that said, there are ways of bringing women into the argument that Confucius didn't bother to do. Okay. Um, so, for example, um, Sun Tzu, the, uh, the author of The Art of War, um, I, I've translated The Art of War, actually, uh, for, um, for, uh, for Robinson. I think it was Robinson. It might have been Constable. Constable or Robinson. It was one or the other. Um, and uh, there are some very sexist moments in The Art of War. Because um, when you talk about deceiving someone, you use very gendered phrases in classical Chinese. So yeah. you say, you know, be coquettish like a woman. And then when he's not looking, punch him in the face. Um, and so I translated uh, so, you know, I, I included footnotes in there uh, uh, on the nature of the translation saying, you know, I'm, I'm translating the sexism of the time here. Um, however, I would not say that Sun Tzu himself was inherently sexist. In fact, Sun Tzu very famously said, I can train anyone to be a soldier. I'll prove it to you. And he got a bunch of women from the harem of one of the king, uh, one of the kings of China, of uh, what um, China was going to be. Um, and he trained them up. And he drilled them as, as soldiers. So Sun Tzu was open to the prospect of women having some kind of capability beyond that of being a daughter or a wife or a mother. Confucius did not bother with that at all. Um, he had uh, he, his mother was a, was quite a powerful figure. Uh, he, he was raised by a single mother. In fact, uh, his father died when he was very young. Um, he had a disabled brother. Uh, it's, I mean, it's a very kind of modern background. Uh, he had a quarrelsome relationship with his wife. I think he actually got divorced late in life. <laughs> um, and when he talks about women in the Analects, uh, one of them is kind of this mother-in-law joke when he says women are like servants. You know, you show them kindness and they take advantage. You scold them and they sulk. And that's all he's got to say. Um, and then there's some issues about a very famous... Um, and scurrilous figure um, in in the in the Bronze Age, a, a woman called Nanza, 
who was having a public affair with her brother um and uh and she was a duchess uh, in uh, um uh in in one of the the chinese um dukedoms which would later become kingdoms and uh, confucius was staying there and she invited him to see her uh and confucius was it, it was like hal 9000 in 2001 it did not compute computer says no because he <laughs> couldn't go and see a scarlet woman but he couldn't refuse the invitation of a duchess and he went into absolute conniptions about it um and uh, it's a very kind of controversial moment. And in fact, in, in the Confucius biopic starring Zhao Yun-Fat, it's one of the best sequences is when he goes to see this woman. This, he goes to see Nanza. And this has become a subject of some debate, particularly in, in later years when, when, when feminists got involved in discussions over Confucius. Um, his meeting with Nanza becomes this kind of crucial point in his career. But the fact is, is that uh, he didn't have a whole lot to say about women. Um, and whereas, you know, you can forgive the, the, uh, the assumptions of a Bronze Age society, um, there have been attempts by um, feminists, by modern feminists, to claim Confucianism as something that can be applied in a feminist way. And I don't see that in the text itself. You've really got to push it way, way outside what the text is actually saying before you can start to include women. Because... Um, in, in, in Confucian terms, women are supposed to be indoors, out of trouble, obedient to their fathers as girls and to their husbands as women and to their sons as old women. Um, and so there is no place for them in kind of public life. Um, and so uh, I was going to say something else and I forgot what it was going to be. Uh, oh, yeah. And so, for example... Um, in uh, one of the problems that I have as a historian dealing with imperial Chinese history is that women's names don't get mentioned. Okay. It was considered rude to address a lady by her name. And so there are thousands of moments in Chinese history where women are just kind of shuffled off into the shadows, um, supposedly out of a sense of chivalry. Um, chivalry itself, however, you know, it contains within it this kind of ingrained notion of sexism. Um, so even when you're trying to be nice in the Confucian sense, you're basically pushing women to the sides. Um, so it's a very traditional, very conservative approach to the role of women. Um, so in, in that regard, it doesn't have a whole lot to offer a modern girl. OK, I think I can live with that. Because I'm still liking his old attitude. Uh, yeah, I mean, you'll, you'll still be cherished if, that, if that's any help, Alex. You know, yeah. you'll be cherished. Just not written about. Just not written about a whole lot. <laughs> right. OK, you've just mentioned difficulties um, mm. as a historian writing about old China. Yeah. This is a biography of someone who lived 2,500 years ago. So where on earth do you find material for this and how much is there? Uh, well, like I said, I mean, if materials that Confucius was involved with in some way amount to double the size of the New Testament. Um, in terms of Confucius himself, the most important book is a book called The Analects, Lun Yu, uh, which is a collection of his sayings. And unlike, say, the Bible, which happens in a chronological order, the Analects is just all over the place. So if you kind of imagine there's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and then the next chapter is him arriving on Palm Sunday and then the chapter after that is him dying and the chapter after that is him being born. Going to be it's like real... in that um, cloud atlas. Yes, it's, it's very cloud cloud atlasy. Yeah, <laughs> it's all over the place. So, and and I realised that as as um, you know, in in my younger days when I started work on on the biography, and I realised that you could actually rearrange everything 
into a chronological order. Um, why the Analects has to be all out of order is is a is an interesting historiographical issue. It's kind of been assembled in kind of kind of a random way. But there are little clues in the text, like when Confucius was in Lu, he said blah blah blah. When he met Duke I, he said blah blah blah. And okay, well Duke I wasn't born until this date, so I can move that there and I can move this there. And he, you know, we knew that he went to Lu after he was in Qi. And 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 you can slowly put these these pieces together until they form a chronological order. And that's actually very useful for me because there are some of the quotes in, uh, in, the, in the Analects which are not from his exile days when he's an old man. They're from when he's a younger man. He's more callow and he's more inexperienced. And so you get to see Confucius making mistakes and you get to see him kind of joking around and you get to see this kind of, uh, I mean, th- th- there's a personality that comes out of it. Um, which is, uh, you know, which, which is, you know, helps you to create a life of somebody because, uh, sometimes with historical figures, you only have the facts of what they did. With Confucius, we have, uh, a, we don't really have a whole lot of facts about what he did because he didn't do a whole lot, but we have conversations that he had and we have people slagging him off as well. Um, there's a, a book called The Spring and Autumn of Master Yen, uh, which was, uh, believed to be a forgery for many many centuries and then in the 1970s a copy of it was found in a hand dynasty grave and it was realized that this was actually uh, old enough to be a to be a genuine book and it's uh it's about one of the ministers in one of the countries that confucius visited just slagging him off all the time saying what an asshole this confucius is he turns up he thinks he knows everything he tells us that we're sitting on the wrong way on our mats and our food's not right and our songs are wrong he's just a dick and it's just you know it's like a hundred pages of what's wrong with confucius so you get to have these great arguments that kind of come out of the text and when you put them all in and shuffle them around you get a story that's you know a human life and that's you know fantastic fun i was surprised at how funny he can be Mm. Um, you actually have him cracking jokes is that normal no it's not normal um the the jokes are there in classical chinese you can see them but classical chinese is a very very terse language if you think of latin times 10 yeah you you say the subject of a sentence and if the subject doesn't change you never mention the subject again and you go on for three pages and, and you may have forgotten what that sentence is about and if you've lost the first page where you say what the subject is you don't know who's talking um, so uh, it's a very terse language, but when you unpack it, you can see humor. Confucius was, uh, particularly later in life, when he kept on failing, he became very sarcastic and very sardonic. Um, and so he was given a speech once, and there was a heckler in the crowd who said, you know, Confucius, you don't really seem to know uh, any single subject. You're just kind of... You just think you know everything. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. Maybe I should just be a chariot driver then. You know, fuck <laughs> off. Um, and, it, and it's incredibly, you know, immediate and, 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 and funny. But the thing is, is that because he's held in such reverence by the Chinese, because he's achieved this very iconic, you know, d- uh, godlike status, no one wants to talk about him arguing with his wife, falling yeah. out with his son, uh, failing in any way. And so those kind of stories get edged away um, from the record, but they're definitely there in classical Chinese. And, and, and you know, I, I'd certainly try and bring them out because I think, I think it's, it, he's not just this iconic figure. He's a real man. He was a struggling teacher 
with a very modern kind of upbringing with the kind of things that he had to deal with um you know in, in a way you know he's got this you know he's raised by a single mother he's disabled brother uh, a teaching career that doesn't quite go the way he wants to you know nobody likes him um uh, you know he loses his job he's got all of these you know very real problems in his life and that helps explain the kind of person that he became hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at bluenile.com. That's bluenile.com. You're talking about how the Chinese revere him now and how that affects yeah. how people want to discuss him and talk about him. Mm-hmm. If we were going to boil him down into a nutshell as to what he achieved in his own lifetime, what do we end up with? Almost nothing. In terms of his own philosophy, that he was a, a political consultant and he was there to run countries for you, he basically couldn't get arrested. Um, in a didactic sense, in the sense that he saw himself as a teacher, he created the curriculum that the Chinese would basically use in their civil service exams for the next 2,000 years. I mean, literally. If you were taking, in 1904 uh, or 1905, when, when the man who would become Chairman Mao sat down to take the last set of civil service exams in China, the questions were on the works of Confucius. Um, and that is an incredible achievement in Chinese history, but also a terrible flaw in Chinese history. I mean, one of the reasons that China was so um, uh, badly treated in the 19th century is that they were still clinging to these kind of Bronze Age ideas of, of what constituted uh, a school curriculum. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so if you want to call Confucius a politician, he was a complete failure. You want to call him a teacher. He established the entirety of the Chinese curriculum uh, for the next 2000 years, although there are some caveats attached to that, which I think we might get to um, because, you know, it took a while for people to accept that it was worth listening to Confucius. So looking at the book, Mm. Confucius dies a little past the halfway mark. Why do you do that? And why is there so much that I mean, I think you've just answered this in part, why there is so much to say about him after he dies. So, so here's the thing. Uh, He, when he was born, supposedly his mother dreamt of a unicorn. And the last entry in the Spring and Autumn Annals, which is the history of, uh, of his state of Lu, is him being called away to consult on a cryptozoological matter. They found some weird creature, and it's a unicorn. Oh. And, and Confucius weeps, and he says, oh, for who have you come? For who have you come? And this is a subject of great debate among Confucians because some people believe that. So, so the idea of a unicorn, of, of, a, of a Jilin, uh, if you know Kirin beer, it's the thing on the Kirin beer um, uh, label. Um, the idea of a unicorn in Chinese uh, uh, 
tradition is that when you is that you see it when a sage is about to be born, when a great sage king will arise. Okay. And so when Confucius finds a unicorn, and he's you know he's in his seventies and he's weeping because he's not going to see it. You know he knows that the great sage king is going to arise in China, but he's not going to see it. And you know so everything he's been waiting for. You know, he's going to die before he sees the promised land kind of thing. That's one interpretation. The other interpretation, which is one that the Chinese really ran with, um, was that Confucius was himself the sage king. Yeah, he's himself, but not rising until after he dies. He's the uncrowned. I mean, mean, uh, Sima Chen actually calls him the uncrowned king. Um, And so when he sees the unicorn, he knows he's going to die. And that's why he's crying. Um, and so what you get in Chinese historiography, well, firstly, after the death of Confucius, China just turned to absolute shit. There was no sage king at all. There was a massive, absolutely massive um, uh, period known as the Warring States period, the clues in the name. And China was just plunged into uh, centuries of, of, of civil war. And it ended with the rise of the first emperor, uh, uh, Qin Shi Huang. Um, and during that period, Confucianism fell way out of favor, or rather any sense of the traditional fell out of favor. Instead, what you got was a group of people called the legalists. And the legalists were the exact opposite of Confucius. They didn't believe in rewarding people. They didn't believe in a harmonious society. They believed in a society run on martial law. They believed in punishment. They believed in creating a society that was basically um, a massive agriculture um uh, agribusiness designed to fund and supply a massive national army that would conquer the world. That's how legalism worked. And it was all about punishment and it was all about uh, torture and uh, institutionalized corruption. One of the most fantastic things about the state of Qin, which was where legalism really took hold, was that if you committed a crime, you had to pay a, f- uh, you, you could, uh, you could be imprisoned or uh, tortured or, or, or mutilated in some way, or you could give the state um, a monetary value that paid that off. So you could be sentenced to 10 years hard labor, but if you could supply them with a slave to do the labor for you, or with the monetary value of a slave to do the labor for you, you'd be let off. Um, and, and the state of Qin was quite open about this because they said, well, you know, we, we just want to make the state better. We just want to punish people. If we, if we can punish you by taking your money, we'll do that. Um, so, so the legalists absolutely hated Confucius, thought he was an absolute time-wasting witterer, and that everything needed to be run on, frankly, fascistic lines. Um, and of course, the first emperor didn't last for, for, for more, he, he didn't make it to 20 years, uh, and the first emperor's empire collapsed, absolutely fell apart. Um, and so the Han dynasty, which supplanted uh, the Qin dynasty, the Han dynasty, which is roughly uh, coterminous with um, the Roman Empire in Europe, and the Han dynasty lasted about the same time as well, about 400 years. They were desperately trying to establish something that made them not like the legalists and something that made them not like the people they just overthrown. And so they turned increasingly to Confucius. Um, and uh, there's this legend, there's this idea um, that the unicorn heralding the sage king shows up once every 500 years. So as the 500th anniversary of the death of Confucius started to come around, there's all this kind of very, very pro-Confucian idea about 
you know how we should deal with stuff and how we should uh how we should run a state and you know maybe the sage king is that guy over there maybe it's this prince who's just been born but of course in order to to have that conversation you've got to say you believe in confucius and you believe in this sage king um and in the han dynasty you get this fantastic uh level of historiography that i mean you would you would just not believe this um so the spring and autumn annals which is this history book that um confucius supposedly edited it's very dull. Yeah. Uh, it says, uh, in the winter, the Duke attacked, attacked the state of Julu. Men of the state of Chu dispatched each end to come and present plunder of war. It's, you know, it's basically a straightforward annal of, of what happened year by year. But in the Han Dynasty, people started to say, well, Confucius meant every single word to mean something. He meant it very, very carefully that every word should mean something. So you've got these, uh, I've got here, I've got the thing called the Gong Yang commentary on the spring and autumn annals. Every single sentence has got a, a paragraph or two paragraphs out of it explaining why that verb was used and why not another verb. And why does they call him the Duke when he was actually a king at this time? And, 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 and why do they call the state Julo when actually it was called Ju? And, and so every, so even the, the, the typos in the spring and autumn annals are believed to have some kind of relevance. And to truly understand Confucius, you have to know why every single word is placed where it is. So you get this incredible level of kind of anal detail applied to not just the works of Confucius, but works that were associated with Confucius. In, uh, so by the, the early Middle Ages, the works of Confucius and indeed uh, Mencius, who was um, a pupil, I believe, of Confucius's grandson, uh, they become known as the four books. So you've got the three books of Confucius, the Great Learning, Doctrine of the Mean, and the Analects. And you've got the works of Mencius as well. And those basically become the core of the Chinese curriculum. And it takes until the high middle ages for that to be really established. But once that's established, anyone who wants a job in the Chinese state has to pass an exam which involves memorizing the works of Confucius. I mean, part of the exam would be there'd be a passage from Confucius and you'd have to fill in the blanks. So you'd literally have to memorize it. And so uh, up until uh, the, for the early years of the 20th century, anyone going into the civil service, going into medicine, uh, going into any professional career in China had to know the works of Confucius. And that's why Confucianism becomes so ingrained in Chinese, because we're looking back at the spring and autumn annals and we're looking back um, at the book of songs. I mean, Confucius said, if you know the 300 songs, you know all the information you need to know about the world and how it works. And so these, you know, things that he edited or used as teaching material become the teaching material for an entire culture. They do. And we've mentioned that it takes um, that it's the reason that China is crapped on in the 19th century. And it's yeah. the reason that it takes so long for China to emerge into onto the world stage. That said, when they when they do, how does that affect Confucius's fortunes when in the 20th century, for instance? Well, there, uh, there are mixed feelings among the Chinese about the extent to which Confucius is responsible for their ills and their troubles. There were some thinkers like Kang Yo Wei, uh, who was a big reformer. He said that Confucius was a, was a radical and that China needed to be radical like Confucius and, and that within the works of Confucius, there was the argument for a constitutional monarchy, for example. Um, but he was kind of a nutter. Um, 
uh, it was much more common, um, particularly in the early 20th century when the Republican movement is kicking off in China, for people to regard Confucius as a symbol of everything that was hidebound, everything that was wrong with Chinese culture. Um, so uh, uh, He Yin Zhen, for example, who is a very interesting Chinese feminist from the early 20th century, really fascinating thinker. And uh, she says, you know, so much of what's wrong with China is caused by men. And the way that men behave is caused by Confucius. She was you know, absolutely she was right in there for the jugular with uh, what we would now call a concept of the patriarchy. And yeah. that everything that was wrong with China had been caused by, you know, ignoring what women think, ignoring what women say, binding women's feet, um, you know, uh, prioritizing wars and sport over, you know, anything more interesting. It's and funny, so, isn't it, that they don't blame themselves over the course of 2000 years for not evolving like, or evolving or changing the way they look at things. Um, and they blame the guy that said it in the Bronze Age. Well, I mean, up to a point, except Confucius didn't see himself as a reformer, as a radical. He saw himself as a conservative, trying to get people to behave the way they were in the good old days. Yeah. Um, and so what you have with Confucianism 2000 years later is people are still fighting about what that means and what the good old days should be. Um, and you are attempting to apply the standards of a Bronze Age society to the 20th century. Uh, and of course, you know, any, uh, any text, you know, I won't name any religions, but, you know, pick one. Uh, any text that tries to uh, impose the, the, the mores and, and the morals and the traditions of, of a 2000 years in the past um, is going to run into trouble um, when it faces new challenges and new issues. Oh, well, um, anyone? Well, in, indeed. So, you know, there's, uh, so, so that was a real issue for Confucianism as well. And of course, what you end up with, in fact, is, um, is the Cultural Revolution. Uh, when, uh, so, you know, the, the Communist Party uh, takes over, the Communists win, and, and the People's Republic of China is proclaimed in 1949. And then uh, when, when Mao is losing, when Chairman Mao is losing control uh, of his power base, he institutes the Cultural Revolution, which is a crusade against the four olds, uh, old customs, old culture, old habits, old ideas. And so the Red Guards were doing everything. They were ripping down Confucian temples. They were destroying you know, Confucian artifacts, burning Confucian books. Um, if you go to the grave of Confucius now in Chufu, um, it's been reconstructed because the Red Guards dynamited the thing. Um, and, you know, his gravestone has been held back together with, you know, glue and staples because it, it was blown into smithereens. But his grave mound was actually just absolutely destroyed. They went, they broke into the tomb of one of his descendants and dragged the corpse out and hung it from a tree. Um, you know, it, it was a very anti-Confucian time. So his, his fortunes fluctuated greatly in the 20th century. Is it fair to say then that the greatest enemy to um, Confucianism and Confucius is communist? No, uh, surprisingly, no. Um, I would say the greatest enemy to Confucianism is postmodernism. Okay. Um, because the you know the the Communist Party did what they did, and then uh, as time went on, they saw that there was a way, that Confucianism had merits. It had uses in running a society. 
And so they kind of backed away in the uh, 80s from from attacking Confucius and, in fact, began to support him in a, in a, in a great way and use him in all kinds of um, uh, slogans and, uh, and ideas. But postmodernists turn up, uh, literary critics. Um, there's a couple, uh, Brooks and Brooks, they're a married couple who wrote a book called The Original Analects. Um, and they were very earnest and intelligent and smart textual critics who wanted to dig down into the original text of the Analects and work out what was the real Confucius. Because clearly there are bits of the Analects that have been written after other bits. There are bits that use terms that couldn't possibly have been used at the time Confucius was alive. There are bits that might have been written in by a, a descendant of one of his pupils who wanted to make the pupil look more important, so added a bit and took a bit away. So Brooks and Brooks delved into the Analects, and they tried to find uh, what the what the original Confucius was. Um, uh, but they were so successful at saying, well, this bit was obviously written after he was dead, and this bit doesn't relate to Confucian, and this bit was copied from this other book. By the time they'd finished, there was only one paragraph left. Wow. Going through everything that Confucius had said in the Analects and, and, and cutting this away and cutting that away, there was only one passage from Analects chapter 4 that they believed contained any actual quotes from the man himself. And it is as follows. The master said, he does not worry that he has no position. He worries about whether he is qualified to hold one. He does not worry that no one recognizes his worth. He seeks to become worthy to be recognized. The gentleman concentrates on right. The little man concentrates on advantage. And that's all that's left of the historical Confucius, according to Brooks and Brooks. And they're very persuasive as well. There's no reason to doubt them. So they said, so if a disciple asks a question or if Confucius is in a particular country, uh, it's probably the fact that uh, one of the uh, descendants of that school added that passage to make their, their master look good. Or if it's a particular country, someone from that country added that passage to make it look like you know he'd been to their country. So there's almost nothing left. Um, and so this creates this very kind of postmodern issue, much like, you know, did Shakespeare write Hamlet? Um, yeah. the, quest, the question then becomes, well, does it matter if he did or not? Because the text still exists. So um, what I would suggest is that um, regardless of whether or not you're going to follow the postmodernists down that rabbit hole and deny that any of it's genuine at all. It's on hell fact, of the rabbit hole, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But but. Um, the fact is, is that for 2000 years of Chinese history, people have believed that Confucius wrote those words or Confucius said those things. And so therefore, you know, the text still exists, whether or not you want to dispute its origins. Um, the text is still there and it's still a vital part of Chinese culture. It is indeed. Um, he is experiencing a huge renaissance in the 21st century, though, isn't he? Yes, yes, he is. Largely, we have the Communist Party to thank for this. Um, but the, the fact is, is that uh, Confucius, because he didn't talk about the supernatural, because yeah. he's not supposedly a religion, is a fantastic secular icon. And so in Singapore, for example, when the government of Singapore is looking for something that can unite all these different races in Singapore, but still be kind of Chinesey, 
they say, well, you know, we can all agree that Confucius was cool, that he was a great thinker. Let's all behave in a Confucian way. Um, and uh, after the fall of the Gang of Four and the rise of Deng Xiaoping in China, the Chinese took a page from the Singaporean, you know, rule book and said, well, let's try that too. Let us say, let's discover Confucius as an icon that we can all agree on um, about creating a harmonious society so they started to run academic conferences that didn't call for the dynamiting of his tomb um, and this culminated in 2005 with Hu Jintao the leader of China saying we want a harmonious society um, and so that has become one of the buzzwords of modern China uh, in the 21st century this idea that you shouldn't rock the boat that you should just get on and try and cooperate with everybody and that Confucius is this kind of icon that holds all Chinese people together and it's a very handy smokescreen over the Communist Party itself um, so uh, for example um, every country more or less has a cultural outreach organisation you know, we've got the British Council and the Germans have got the Goethe Institute and the Spanish have got the Instituto Cervantes. And I can't remember what the French one's called, but it's something French. Um, and they've all, they're all named after these kind of iconic figures. People's Republic of China has the Confucius Institutes, which are scattered all over the world and are agents of Chinese soft power. So this is completely normal for any country to do that. Um, however, the Confucius Institutes have you know, created some controversy because they keep on trying to push a People's Republic agenda. Um, if they were called Chairman Mao Institutes, people would probably understand more what their position is in terms yeah. of, uh, you know, China's overseas uh, cultural policy. But they're not. They're called Confucius Institutes. So they're kind of soft and fluffy and fun and, and, and not quite <laughs> what you're expecting. Um, so for all these reasons, Confucius has experienced you know, a massive renaissance. Um, in, in the 21st century in particular. And, and uh, I, I don't see it fading either because he's such a handy icon. You know, it's not just about China. It's about Korea. It's about Japan. It's about Vietnam. He's perfect uh, for the 21st century because this whole mantra of stepping away from nationalism and religion and just saying, let's just not be dicks. Yes, quite absolutely. appealing to this generation, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and so we, you know, there's a whole you know, group of American political thinkers who, who see themselves as new Confucians who are trying to you know, promote this kind of agenda, too. So it's a very good policy for kind of unifying different countries. Um, and, and the People's Republic are, are spearheading that. But there are plenty of other countries as well that see themselves as Confucian-ish. Um, and, and that kind of helps glue everything together. One last question for you. What do you reckon the chances are that we'll uncover anything else that we know he wrote? Um, well, in fact, in our lifetime, there have been several discoveries of, of new, you know, new Confucian works. Um, in uh, in the seventies, in Ma Wong Dui, which is a, a grave site in Changsha in South China, uh, they found a tomb belonging to a, a, an aristocrat, and he was buried with his library. And several of the books in there were um, were books that no longer existed. Uh, you know, the first emperor very famously burned all the books that disagreed with him. And in fact, the works of Confucius were believed lost for a long time. And then it was only about uh, it was several decades later that they found them hidden in a wall in Chufu in his hometown. And and so most of our copies of Confucian works are descended from these books that were hidden in this wall. But there were some books that weren't in that wall and have been dug up in graves since. So there's a book called um, Several Disciples Asked, 
which was found at Marwang Dui. And there's a book called The Essentials of the I Ching, uh, which is supposedly a Confucian work. But the thing is, is that Confucian did, Confucius didn't speak about the supernatural. So why he's going to be looking at the book of changes and talking about foreseeing the future is a problematic area. And the idea of the essentials is um, that he claimed in later life that he liked reading the wisdom in the the uh, the, the I Ching is, is often called the I Ching in, uh, in English. He liked reading the wisdom in it, but he didn't use it to predict the future. That's a very doubtful claim to make, but that's one that's made in the book. Um, and then in 2011, uh, in Nanchang, um, there was another discovery, another grave of a guy called the Marquis of Haihun, a very controversial figure. Um, and he was buried uh, again with some books. Um, and very handily, there was an earthquake about 1700 years ago that dropped his entire grave below the water table in Nanchang. So everything was, was waterlogged and preserved. And uh, they've dug up his grave now. And they are, and in the grave, one of the things they found was something called the Qi Analects. And this is a copy of the Analects, uh, the, the sayings of Confucius, but it's from the state of Qi, where it had two extra chapters. Uh. Um, and it's a chapter called The King Asks, Wen Wong, uh, or sorry, Asking the King. Uh, and there's a chapter called Zhidao, uh, uh, The Knowledge. And those are both new chapters of Confucius. Um, and I've actually seen them. I, I've been to the, uh, the grave site in, um, in um, Nanchang, uh, where they are trying to uh, preserve everything. But unfortunately, because of the nature of a waterlogged grave find, these things have to be taken out and, and dried very slowly. And you know, they, have to, they have to soak them in chemical baths, which are too dangerous to breathe in there. Um, and so when I saw these books, they looked like a load of trays holding chopsticks because they're, they're written on strips of bamboo. Yeah. Um, and so they look like a whole set of trays of broken chopsticks and you lean in really close and you can make out some of the characters written on them, but you can't lean in that close because if you breathe in, your lungs will, will fail. Um, so we've still got to wait a couple of years before we can actually read these. But, it's, you know, it's very exciting because this is a new Confucian stuff that, you know, has literally only been found in the last 10 years. Amazing. Jonathan, as ever, it's been a complete pleasure to talk to you about Chinese history. It's something that it's not on my radar. It's not something that particularly moves me but every time i talk to you about it i find something to love about chinese history so come back anytime to share more of it with us because it's outstanding we will make sure that we put your uh, confucius biography on our new bookshop page so if you would like to read the book uh, just visit that because then not only does jonathan benefit but history hack gets a cut as well so we like this and it takes money out of the hands of the monsters like amazon as well and uh, we like that too jonathan thank you so much thank you for having me Join us tomorrow for St. Dorman's Day. We've renamed it here on History Hack. First off, Andy Dorman will be talking to us about British soldiers in Ireland. Uh, he may be going somewhere you're not expecting with that episode, so don't miss out on that one. And then in the evening, we have a special edition of Down the Pub in which we let Dorman judge Ireland's greatest moment. Um, but because we're sadistic, we made him judge it alongside Princess. Uh, and you can see how that went. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack, and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year, and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you, and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you, and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join 
There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.